life is full of minor developments too, of course. You know, little FYI type moments that just sort of come and go without much heft or force to them. Uh, uh, a sports team and a sport you're not interested in in a country whose name you can't pronounce did okay in their last game. Great, thank you for that information. Um, but every now and then, something comes along that matters a little bit more. It's, it's not a reality butterfly flitting by um, that, that, that comes and goes with no effect. Every now and then, reality will send us a, a freight train of information. Uh, something that, that comes at us with such force and that we immediately and instinctively recognize as something that we must respond to. Uh, for me personally, I know, um, I, I think of when uh, my wife and I's house burned down not that long ago. Um, and the, the, there's an image that's forever seared in my memory, pardon the, the pun, um, about that event, and it, and it was seeing, no, smelling smoke, and then seeing one of the floor vents and smoke wafting up from it and realizing not only is the house on fire, it's beneath us, and I don't know where. Um, when, when it occurred to me, your wife, your infant daughter, your little sister, you are all in a house that is on fire, uh, that is information that requires a response. That is a reality freight train, um, and that's not something where you sit back and say, okay, well, FYI, the house is on fire. Um, if you've been following along with us as we've, if we've been going through this series in Nehemiah, Restored, Pursuing True Purpose, um, you, you might have noticed that we've been talking a lot about God's word, the, the, the scripture, the, the Torah, uh, the, the first five books of the Bible, uh, specifically because that's, of course, you know, what mainly the, the folks in Nehemiah's time were, were engaging with. Um, but... They, they, the people, Jewish people in Nehemiah's time have, have, have for themselves kind of personally rediscovered God's word. They are studying it. They are reading it. They are being convicted of sin through it. They are rejoicing over it. They are, they're holding the word up in one hand and in, in the mirror of their own lives in the other and seeing the, the vast unbridgeable gap between the two. And they're weeping over it. And so the, this word of God, this unique and inspired revelation of God's existence and character has hit them quite recently like a reality freight train. And they realize that that is information that they need to respond to. So we'll be reading from the book of Nehemiah. We'll be reading just the very last verse in chapter 9 and going through to the end of chapter 10. So if you want to flip there with me, feel free. Otherwise, just follow along on the screen. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malkijah, Hatush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Meramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Mashulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Meziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. And the Levites, Yeshua, the son of Azaniah, Binwi, the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherabiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu. The chiefs of the people, Parash, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bebai, Adonijah, 
Bigvai, Adin, Atter, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bezai, Harif, Ananoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezir, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashbanah, Messiah, Ahia, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, Banah. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to, yearly, to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord and also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring out the first of our dough and of our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Every generation and individual must respond to the existence and character of God because no other option exists. I... I, I make this assertion, and, and, I, and I hope to, to share the details of it with you, but I, I start with that because there are freight train level implications to the existence of a personal creator, uh, of a God who is holy, who detests evil and hates injustice. There are implications to that reality. Uh, a God who is involved and active in seeking as opposed to one who just set things in motions and then sat out existence. Uh, because. That, that God, the, the God who is active, the God who hates injustice, the God who pursues righteousness is the God that the Bible describes. And, and that's what the people in Nehemiah's time were confronted with as they studied God's word. A God whose character, whose existence had implications for their lives. Um, so 
as, as they studied, they realized they, they were not dealing with religion as usual, with gods as usual for the ancient world. They're, they were not coming into the presence of a mute idol that by its very silence tacitly thumbs up whatever sin they decided wasn't that big of a deal. It, it wasn't a, a vague and menacing spirit that was placated by empty sacrifice and wrote ritual. It, they, they weren't coming before a god who was a absent-minded but well-meaning spiritual granddad who just wants them to be happy. Um, they came before the God described in the Bible, an all-consuming fire. And so when I say that people must respond to the existence and character of God, I say this because the God who reveals himself to us in the pages of the Bible has a nature and reality such that ignoring it, ignoring him, is on par with seeing that smoke wicking up from the floor grate beneath you and just going back to watching TV. So this section of Nehemiah that we just read, it's, it's chock full of all sorts of interesting details. Um, but the big picture of it is actually pretty straightforward. That, that first verse, because of all this, because of all this, we will obey the law. Because of everything that has led up to this moment, because of everything we've just read, been confronted with, learned, has transpired, because of all this, we will obey the law. We will rededicate ourselves to God's plan for us, for his way of doing things, for how we ought to comport ourselves in his sight. Again, lots of details, lots of really awesome Hebrew names if anyone's having a baby, you know. Shechaniah is just ridiculously underutilized in the modern world. <laughs> But, but the people say, we'll obey the covenant law. God, we are in. Restore us. Uh, help us pursue your true purpose for us. Sign me up. Um, and, and their response is what I want to focus on because I think what we see here helps illustrate how a response to God's existence and character can take place in our own lives. We can, we can look at what they did and, and say, okay, so this is how they responded to the existence and character of God. How does that match up with us? You know, what's the same? What's different? Um, you know, what can we learn here? So there's, there's really three things that I saw that we can, we can just immediately take away about how their response to God took place. And, and the first is just that um, a response to God happens both individually and generationally. Um, and that also um, it shows that their response was informed by available information and relevant experience, and that at last, a response to God's character and existence must invariably count the cost of that response, whatever it might be. Uh, so as to the first point, just the response must happen individually and generationally. What do I mean by that? I, obviously, I like large words. That's not going to change anytime soon. But um, the... The people come together. They make this firm covenant. They all, they, they line up and they say, we are going to do this. Um, they've, they've separated themselves from the spiritual business as usual of the world. The, the sin-sick, dead ways of operating that, that the world has existed in. And their civil leaders, their spiritual leaders, the middle managers, the floor scrubbers, uh, their wives, any kid who's old enough to get it, and even, even the band, all get together, and it's, it's, it's a spiritual band, so I don't know, praise team, whatever the, the churchy term is. But, um, they, they come together, and, and they, 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 they do this. They, they, they say, okay, 
we are going to respond because of all this. And, and my point is, is that as we read God's word, just like they were doing, as we come to interact with the God described in the Bible, we quickly see that when we come into his presence, we don't do so as a category, as, as part of a group. Um, every man, every woman, every child who has enough knowledge and understanding to do so comes before God on their own. Um, we, we don't get to say, well, I was born in a Christian nation, God, and that means I have good Christian morals, TM. Um, we don't get to say, well, my grandfather built First Baptist Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, so that makes me spiritual royalty. <laughs> we, we come before God as individuals. Uh, we, don't, we don't approach the throne of judgment with an ancestral pedigree. There, there's no virtue accumulated for us um, by anything that has come before. Um, everyone stands and falls on their own before the judgment of a holy and perfect God. Now, Nehemiah is the first signature on that document. You might remember, big long list of names at the top, Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Why? Nehemiah signs this thing just like them. I will rededicate myself to the law of the Lord. He, he didn't say, okay, you guys are screwed up. You guys do this. I'm Nehemiah, though. I'm freaking Nehemiah. I've got my own book of the Bible, people. Um, or at least I'm working on it. It's going to be a real page turner. Um, they're like, wow, Nehemiah, are there lots of lists of names in your book? And he's like, yes, yes, there are. You're welcome. <laughs> so, uh, um, so the, the need to respond to God is most certainly individual and personal. We see that here. Everybody is on equal footing. But we do also see something that adds to that, or at the very least complicates that simple observation, and that's that they are doing it together. They are coming together as this big group, doing it on paper, on purpose, uh, as a gathered community, as a group of people. And, and I thought about that, and I think what we see, um, that, that the best way I could actually, that, that it came to me was a quote that uh, the man who had become the 40th president of our United States, Ronald Reagan, once observed. He said that freedom is never more than one generation from extinction. We don't pass it down to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for. It must be protected, lest one, we, we end up spending our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in these United States where men were free. Um, and, and his point there was just that the, that the ideals that make America, America weren't something that just, you know, were, were guaranteed, were certain, were going to happen no matter what. It was something that had to be taught, had to be passed down. Every generation had to accept or reject the lessons of the past, the values they had been handed. Because again, we don't come before God with an ancestral pedigree. We cannot say, well, our ancestors made a decision about how to respond to God. Every generation is confronted with that same choice, just as the one before us was, just as the one after us will be. What does verse 29 say, in fact? Um, because that one actually felt, felt relevant. Um, they, speaking of the people, they say they join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Now, I'll talk more about that curse later because that's interesting. You know, and who, who wants to enter into a curse? Why isn't my church taking off? Um, but but the, the terminology being used here, this, this, this oath and this curse, this is old terminology. If you've spent lots of time in, in the Old Testament, um, we've seen this scene before. Uh, this, this imagery has been utilized. Um, it's invoking the past. 
Uh, we see in the book of Exodus, earlier in the Bible, God descends in a cloud of fire on the mountain Sinai and delivers the law to the Jewish people. He, he gives it to Moses, he reads it to the people, and the people reply, all the things that the Lord has spoken we will do and be obedient. And then a generation later, an old and dying Moses speaks to a new generation of Israelites who did not see the fire descend on Sinai or hear God's voice in the thunder, and he tells them the same things. He reads them the law again, and they say, we will obey this, we will do. And, and he tells them, and actually in, in Deuteronomy 11, 26, he, Moses says to them, this new generation, and he says, see, I am sitting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. And again, he even tells them outright, actually, in Deuteronomy 6. And by the way, tell this stuff to your children. Have, have it always on your lips. Talk about it when you're sitting at the gates. You know, talk about it when you lie down to rest. Talk about it when you travel. Talk about it at home. Write it on your foreheads if you have to. But, but share this information. Pass along this information to the next generation about how God has commanded us to respond. Even further, in the book of Joshua, Joshua challenges a new generation of God's people when he says, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And in the book of Judges, and in the book of Kings, and so on and so on, this, this cycle, this theme repeats as every generation must come before the Lord individually and decide how to respond to him, and it, as they must decide whom they will serve. Now, that, that was the first point, the, the, that we have to respond to God individually and generationally. The, the second one is just that our response to God must be an informed one. Um, and that, that might seem relatively straightforward. In some ways, it is. Um, because I think we can see that um, when, when we look at it, we say, okay, we need to respond to God. We, that, that has to be us. No one's going to do it for us. Fine. But how do we do that? And what kind of response do we make? Are all responses created equal? And, and I think we would prefer it that way just because that would be easier. That would seem kinder on its face. Um, because I, I think especially uh, with us here in the modern West, we have an unusual criteria for, for judgment that only comes out, or at the very least almost only comes out in matters of faith and spirituality, and that is the, the metric of sincerity. Well, he means what he, he, he really believes what he believes. He really means it. Um, at least he believes something. We, we, we start using those terms when we talk about people's faith beliefs. Um, but what's interesting is we, we don't do that about our doctors. Well, he believes what he believes. We, we, with, with medical professionals, we're very interested in whether they're right or they're wrong. Uh, they know what they're talking about. But when it comes to religion, suddenly we're, we're okay with things being a little bit fuzzier. And so when we, we, we suddenly deploy this metric of sincerity rather than accuracy, I think that's, that's, that's one of the many, many reasons why I, I, I harp on this point that our response to God must be informed. Because, and, and we see this in the text, verse 28 talks about all who had knowledge and understanding. Uh, so this, this community at least 
saw as a fundamental prerequisite to having a response to God, to being involved in this covenant renewal, was that you knew what you're talking about. They weren't accepting rubber stamps from toddlers saying, yeah, sure, sign me up. If you're signing up for a curse, um, you should be walking into it with eyes open. And that was something that they thought was important enough to say, this is for the people who get it. This is for the people who are, who are on board, eyes wide open, saying, yes, God, we will respond to you in this way. And so... Perhaps even more clearly, though, we see it in 938, our opening sentence. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Because of all this, we will respond to God. Now, that obviously raises the question, what is the all this being referred to? Um, If you were with us last week, at the very least, it means chapter 9, right? Um, and, and you might remember some details, but it's, chapter 9 is essentially a, a look back at the, the history of God's interaction with the Jewish people and them saying, okay, you know, how has God interacted with us? How have we interacted with God? We, we see God's pattern of consistent faithfulness and covenantal love, and we see our collective pattern of unfaithfulness and disobedience. And then we look at And and in chapter 9, they look at their present through the lens of God's past interaction with them. So they are, their their response there, we make this firm covenant, we will rededicate ourselves to the law, it's informed by the information they have available, by the past, by what they have seen God do in their lives, by the recordings of what God has done in the lives of their ancestors. So it is an informed response. Now, the, the lion's share of the text today, uh, especially if you omit the names list, is um, the details of the renewed covenant. What the people will and won't do as a result of their response to God. And, and we have to ask, uh, you know, why these things specifically? Why, why don't we get to marry pagans? What if they're really attractive pagans? Um, why do we have to give up the crop every seven years? What, what's a tithe? What's a Levite? Why does the Levite get a tithe? Will he be mad at me if I give it to him? Um, so the, the, these details, they're, wh- where do they come from? The answer is they came from the information that they had received. They came from having been informed, from reading the law and learning what, ex- uh, what response God expected from them. Which, which is very convenient that, that, that God, being very particular about how human beings ought to behave, being so righteous and holy, that he took the effort of making it very clear to us how we ought to behave. We are not left in the dark on this subject. Um, and the people came to God's word and tailored their response accordingly and said, okay, God, because of who you are, because of what you've asked, because of your character, this is how we will respond to you. We will respond to you by forgiving debts every seven years. We will not neglect the house of the Lord. And, and I, I continue to hammer this point because I think it's direly important because not all responses are created equal. Now, you might remember that In Nehemiah's day, the Jewish people were returning from a recent exile in the land of Babylon, a divine judgment that had come upon God's people because of their consistent pattern of of disobedience and evil in God's sight. And and in the book of Jeremiah, I think chapter 7, verse 31, um, God's speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, and and he's talking about, well, why is this going to happen? Why are the people going to be judged? And he said, and, and God says to Jeremiah, and they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire 
which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Now, that's, that's an extreme example, and I, and I don't think a lack of having the Bible completely memorized is going to restart child sacrifice in, in 2016 America. But I will say that we can sincerely come before the spiritual world of which God is the ruler and sincerely offer to that spiritual order evil and blasphemy by virtue of our ignorance that we have cultivated as a lack of making an informed response to God. It was not in God's mind for us to live that way. It was not God's command for us to do these things. As to that third point I mentioned earlier, that, that a response to God must count the cost. The, the previous two points have brought us here because when we acknowledge our personal responsibility to respond to God's existence and, and when we inform ourselves as to the particulars of his character, we are faced with the cost of our decided response, whatever that response may be. Because ignoring God is actually a response. That is, that is one of the options that comes before us, but rest assured it is a response. There is no voting present in this matter, just like there's no voting present when your house is on fire. Not responding, ignoring that is a response. And so when, when the people rededicated themselves to the covenant God had made their ancestors, they vowed that they would observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. They looked down the barrel of the law and said, we will enter into the curse and the oath. And, and why? You know, why? Why would you do that? Why? why? Again, that, that question asked there, why do you sign up for the curse? And because they knew that every generation themselves included had to respond to God in one way or another. They had the information on who he was, and they counted the cost of their response. And what is the alternative? What, because the alternative costs as well. Even when we say, I see God's law, I will seek to keep it, I will enter into the curse, what is the alternative? Because uh, Romans 2, verse 12, actually makes it quite plain. For, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. One, one might have hoped they might have evaded the curse by simply not entering into the curse by accepting the law, but the holy God still judges those who reject his law, just as those who accept his law are judged by that law. There are implications to a righteous God, and his wrath is stored up against all evil and all the selfishness of people. And... The difference, if there was a difference, we say, well, well then why, why bother? Why are they doing this? Well, these people at the very least were owning up to it. They were acknowledging it. They saw the reality of their sin, the, the, the wickedness, the disgustingness of unrighteousness before God, and they took it as seriously as they possibly could. Everything we see in the description of this scene is formal. They assemble their leaders. They assemble their, their civic and their religious leaders. They write it down. They sign it. Their people are vowing solemnly that this time, God, it will be different. We have counted the cost never again, not this sin, never again that vice. And I wonder if we have ever, in one sense or another, been there with them in that, in that way. Um, as we've looked at our own lives and what we have just wrecked and just ruined, 
where we have fallen short, where we have failed to keep faith with what we know to be right. Um, and, and, and we say, no more. God, no more. It will be different the next time. And, and that's the, the tragedy of it all because um, in ancient times, the same men who saw the fire on Sinai broke the law not long after. And it was mercy alone that caused God to spare them. And the generation that heard Moses' dying words on the edge of the promised land entered that country and there disobeyed the law despite all that God had given them. And the people who fought under Joshua broke faith as well and on and on and on up to the exile and the people in Nehemiah's time come forward and say, never again, God, this time it will be different. Um, spoiler alert, it's not. It goes all the way back to the very first man who broke faith with God and the curse began and God said, cursed be the ground because of you. Romans 3.23 makes it very clear, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, Shakespeare has a play, several that I really like, but, but my favorite is Much Ado About Nothing. Um, and in it, the main villain has two henchmen, uh, a guy named Conrad and a guy named Baraccio. <laughs> and they, they help the villain in his schemes and, and their, their actions end up, by all appearances, leading to the death of an innocent woman. And they get caught. And Conrad doubles down on the lie. Nope, didn't do it, I'm innocent. Which is really pathetic because it's obvious, they're caught, there's, there's no excuse. But he just, he says, nope, I, I didn't do it. But, but something interesting happens with Baraccio. Baraccio is faced by the girl's father, and he owns up. He says, my villainy they have upon record, which I would rather seal with my death than repeat over to my shame. The lady is dead upon mine and my master's false accusation, and briefly I desire nothing but the reward of a villain. If you would know your wronger, look on me. I think that this is, in and of ourselves, the highest nobility that we as people can aspire to. Uh, wicked men and women, completely deficient in terms of righteousness, standing before the wronged and saying, I am under the curse and I belong there. And so, Nehemiah and the Jewish community come before the law. They say, we will rededicate ourselves and they trust themselves to the mercy of God because there is no other option. And it is of that mercy that I will now briefly speak. Because as the years rolled on from Nehemiah's time, God's people increased in their devotion to the law. Uh, rather than backsliding, as we had seen, they actually became more zealous and more zealous and more zealous. And as their desire to fulfill the letter of the law increased, the spirit of the law withered and died. Uh, the religious leaders would tithe on insignificant herbs and garnishes while they neglected justice and mercy. The, 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 the spiritual and, and well-to-do people would, would devise legal schemes to avoid having to pay to support their elderly and aging parents while still keeping themselves within the lines of what was allowed and what wasn't uh, in terms of fulfilling God's law. And, and in the fullness of that time, and it was into that world that Jesus was born. 
God became a man and he was subject to all our limitations, all our weaknesses and our temptations. He was born under this very law that had crushed all who had sought to keep it and had ended in curse for all who had rejected or accepted it. And Jesus responded to God's law with perfect obedience, fulfilling both letter and spirit completely, upholding every iota and every dot that was required for righteousness in the sight of God the Father. He was faithful where all others were not, where we were not. And when the powers that be sought to have him killed for the embarrassment of exposing their hypocrisy, their failure, their unrighteousness before God, he went willingly to the cross appointed for him. Speaking of us, Paul said in Galatians 3, and you might remember because we read this earlier, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And we have not done them, and so we will not live by the law. But speaking of Jesus, he continues and said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus, who alone was found by the Father to be without sin, who alone was not under the curse, came to our cross and became the curse in our place. Became sin, became the sole focus of God's wrath, so that all who repent and believe in him may receive his record of righteousness from the Father, rather than the one we have earned on our own merits. The mercy of God is this, that with his final breaths crucified, Jesus declared it is finished. The history of God's wrath of the curse of sin stockpiled from the earliest days of humanity, an accumulation of just outrage at the wickedness of people. The curse of sin was finished. Our quest to keep the law, to earn our righteousness was finished. The curse was broken at the cross of Christ, and it is there that we must respond to God, if indeed we are to respond to him. We have received the information of the good news of the gospel, and it is a response that we must make individually and every generation afterward. And it is a response where we must count the cost of both refusing and accepting the offer that we have been extended in Christ. because. It, it won't make all our problems go away. In fact, it will magnify many of our earthly problems. But it will also free us. It will free us from the sin of, of death. It will free us from the curse that has haunted our lives. So how will we respond? Will we rededicate ourselves to our own righteousness and to the keeping of the law, or will we rededicate ourselves to resting in the completed work of Christ on the cross when he declared it is finished? Will we obey out of love and joy at what we have received from the mercy of God, or will we, will we continue to attempt to accumulate 
brownie points with a perfect God, with a holy God, as we shove our sin behind us and, and hope that he does not notice. But we accept that we must come before God with nothing to offer, knowing that we are accepted because of the righteousness of Christ. But we accept what we have been offered when we, when we stand in the presence of God and assembled as a group of, of people who love him, of people who seek his face, the presence of his spirit is among us, and so we are in the presence of God. And I ask, how will we respond to that? I will pray briefly, and then I'll, I'll invite David and the music team to come up. Um, dear Lord, Lord, you are, you are good when there's nothing good in me. You are righteous. When, and I repay that with wickedness. God, I have sought to be holy before you by virtue of my own effort and my own goodness, and I have failed. And I acknowledge that, and I come before you with nothing to offer. God, I pray that all here who have heard these words, however poorly articulated, however haltingly spoken, will hear the breath of your spirit, praying that they turn to you, that they give up what they have been holding back from you, whether it is, it is their love for sin or their love of their own righteousness. God, that we will empty our hands of the chains that we carry and embrace the freedom offered to us through your son, Jesus. God, you are good, and you are kind, and you are merciful. And we have been under your curse justly, and we have been freed by an act of grace that we could not have even had the wisdom to ask for, much less accept without the love of your Spirit. Thank you, God. Turn our hearts to you. Help each and every one of us here today to respond in some way to your existence and your character and our lives may be changed forever by it, and the lives of the generation that follows us may be changed by it. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.